Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. This week we have a double portion. It's Matot and Masay as we wrap up the book of Numbers. And as we come into this portion, um, we're actually com- also coming into part four of the series that we've been in. <laughs> so you all thought we were done last week. I thought we were done last week. But we weren't done last week because there's something I feel like is uh, really critical that we need to discuss. So over the three weeks, we talked about the Levitical priesthood and God's covenant with Aaron and his descendants. We talked about the atoning work of Yeshua through his suffering. And we spoke of last week the role of the temple in the restoration and the expectation of the Messiah, who is at times in Scripture called the righteous branch, who will rebuild the temple. And we spoke as within, we, woven through this whole story, we've spoken of the atoning work of Yeshua and the life that we have through him that is impossible through any other way. The restoration and everlasting life are not possible except through the righteous branch. And one of the key themes that we spoke of is the distinction between the Levitical priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood. So we really couldn't wrap this series up unless we spent some time talking about this Melchizedek priesthood of Yeshua and the impact and implication it has for believers today and in the world to come. So this week, last week was the branch and the temple, this week is the branch and Melchizedek. So if we look at Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, and last week uh, when we we spoke a little bit about the branch. I'm going to reread some of the verses we read last week. So Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness." That could also be by which it is called, the Lord is our righteousness, Jerusalem, or even the branch. Um, And then in Zechariah 6, verses 12 through 13, And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now when we read that scripture, there's something that should stand out to us as being a little strange. Because it speaks of the branch who will bear royal honor and sit and rule on his throne. And it says, and there shall be a priest on his throne a priest on the throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the implication here is that he who will sit, the the righteous branch who will be raised up to rule over Jerusalem, 
and bring peace to it will be both a king and a priest. Now, in the book of Hebrews, the, the writer tries to address which priesthood the Messiah has and the distinction between the two. And so we're going to, we're going to look into that to some degree, or probably quite a bit today. But before we get into that, I want to start with our portion in Numbers 30, verses 2 to 3. There's a lot that happens in our double portion, and most of it we're not going to cover. But two things that we, we will address to some degree are the vows, and then the tribes of Gad and Reuben asking for land on the east side of the Jordan. So starting here at the beginning of the double portion in Numbers 30, verses 2 through 3, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. If a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds... Actually, I don't think I meant to go into verse 3. Let's stop right there at verse 2 because that communicates what I'm wanting to gather from this. God commands that when we make a vow or an oath, that we will keep the vow and the oath. And that's really a reflection of God's character and nature that he's wanting to see carried out in us. He is true to his word. Therefore, we, to be like him, must be true to our word as well. So when the vow is made, the vow is binding. Okay? Now, of course, as you read through this portion, you see that a father can annul a daughter's vow, but ultimately there is, there is a uh, channel of responsibility. And the Lord himself, he makes vows at times in the Scripture, sometimes saying, as surely as I live or I swear by myself, and, and in those things, he will not fail. Those words that go forth from his mouth will accomplish their purpose. And in the Psalms, there are, there are a couple, I don't know how many, but there are vows regarding the Messiah. And in Psalm 132, 11, the scripture says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. So this is a promise to David that he will have a descendant sitting on the throne. And we know that the Messiah comes through the line of David. And then in Psalm 110 and verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, this, um, these are two things spoken of the Lord that one, that the Messiah will be a son of David, and that the Messiah will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And Psalm 110 is a psalm that is frequently quoted in the Brit Hadashah, in the Gospels and Epistles. And so we're going to read Psalm 110 here. It's known, the sages understood this to be a psalm about King Messiah. There's additional stories that go along with it, but I want to read it here. The Lord says to my Lord, so this is Hashem says to my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. 
From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. So within this passage, you see that the Messiah is more than just a son of David, because otherwise David would not have called him his master. For the, the idea that a descendant would be master over an ancestor is counter to the understandings. Right? The fathers are always given precedence over the sons. And so for David to call the coming Messiah his master implies that the master is something greater than David. So the Messiah is a son of David, as God promised, but on the other hand, he sits at the right hand of God, indicating that he is God's son. And so you have the coming Messiah who would be both a son of David and son of God, the dual nature of this coming, son, coming Messiah. And this is what Yeshua refers to in Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, Yeshua is in his final days before the crucifixion. And he is in the temple daily preaching. And while he was there, we read this story from Matthew 22, verse 41 through 46. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Yeshua asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. And he said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord or Master, saying, Hashem said to my master, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him master, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So Yeshua was bringing this issue from Psalm 110 to bear right here before them. He was saying, yes, I am a I am the offspring of David, but I am the son of God. And this actually comes to bear a few days later when he is before Caiaphas in Matthew 26. This is told in verses 63 through 65. As they were accusing him, Yeshua remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. Yeshua said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, which is Hashem, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. So what was taking place here is Yeshua is being accused. The high priest says, Tell us, are you the Messiah? And then he says, the Son of God. It wouldn't be a blasphemous thing for someone to say that they were the Messiah. 
or really technically even implications of a son of God. Kings were called sons of God. But there's an aspect here where what the high priest is concerned about is Yeshua's claims of being the son of God and having divinity in him. In Yeshua's response, was you shall see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. So he was fully affirming what he had said just a few days earlier in Psalm 110 of saying, the Messiah is not just the son of David. He's the son of God. And now I'm telling you this quoting from Daniel that says that he comes on the clouds before the ancient of days and is given a dominion that has no end. And with that, the priest determines that the statement of being the son of God, the literal son of God, would be blasphemous. Okay, so just kind of laying out a little bit here. Yeshua is using Psalm 110, which speaks of the priesthood of Melchizedek and speaks of, as, as an identifying factor of who the Messiah is, along with being a son of David and the son of God. Now, in the book of Hebrews, which we've talked about briefly and kind of sporadically over the past few weeks, the writer goes to great lengths to present Yeshua as having a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. In Hebrews 5, verses 5 through 10, the, the verses I'm not reading, verses 1 through 4, he, uh, the writer was expressing how priests do not appoint themselves. They are appointed by God. Aaron was appointed and his sons were appointed as Levitical priests. And so too, Messiah was appointed. So here in verse 5, So also Messiah did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Yeshua offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who, eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he repeats a similar uh, storyline here in Hebrews 6, 13 through 20, recalling God's promise. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, swear he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Yeshua has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, 
having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so Yeshua's gone as a forerunner before us into this place as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, according to God's promise. So as we read this and we say, okay, well, he has a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek, we have to ask the question, who is this Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek is not spoken of much in the scriptures. In fact, until we come to the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek directly has only been mentioned in Genesis 14 and in Psalm 110. And then, of course, he's, Psalm 110 is referenced multiple times in other places. But if we go to Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20, and what we read here is, after his return from the defeat of Hador Laomer, okay, so that's, that's a tough word, Hador Laomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So we have here that Melchizedek was the king of Salem. His name, Melchizedek, is a combination of Melech and Sedek, which is king of righteousness. He is a priest, but he is not a Levitical priest because he is actually even coming into the scene before the giving of the Torah at Sinai. Now, traditionally, Melchizedek is thought to be Shem, Noah's son. And then, according to tradition, when he blessed Abram, the Melchizedek priesthood was passed from Shem to Abraham. And... There, beyond that, there's not a whole lot of information that I was able to find regarding Melchizedek. Now, the writer of Hebrews takes a different perspective in his presentation of who Melchizedek is than the traditional view. And, and I think a lot of it is to help make a connection between the priesthood of Melchizedek with the priesthood the Yeshua is operating in, and even the divine nature of Yeshua. So if we looked in Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 1, he says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Also, king of Salem is uh, a location. Salem is the future Jerusalem. And, he's, and then he says, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God he continues as a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch 
gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though, even though these are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Okay, so what he goes on to explain is that Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, showing that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And within Abraham were the offspring that would bring forth Aaron and all of his priests. And so, in a way, Aaron and all the Levites were paying tithes to Melchizedek, which gives us the understanding that the Melchizedek priesthood is a higher priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. And the writer of Hebrews goes on. I don't know that I'm going to, I don't know that I'll have all of these verses on the screen, but I want to walk through Hebrews in a little bit more detail than we have previously. So in Hebrews 7, as he continues <clears throat> to go through and explain, he makes note that Yeshua belongs to a tribe that is not part of the Levitical priesthood. And makes note that the Levitical priesthood's purpose is not as broad-reaching as the priesthood of Melchizedek and the work of Yeshua. And he says that Yeshua is the guarantee of a better covenant than that which the Levites serve within. So here in Hebrews 7, 22 through 28, this makes Yeshua the guarantor of a better covenant, right? He's of a higher priesthood with greater purpose, and he is the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, this translation, I should have used a different translation, not because I'm trying to skirt by something, but because this translation is simply wrong. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It says the former priests were many in number. That's not what the Greek says. It says the priests are many in number. And why is that a big deal? Because when the translator says the former priests, he is writing as though they do not exist anymore. However, the book of Hebrews was written before the destruction of the temple, and there were priests at that time who were offering sacrifices and still serving in the Levitical priesthood. So for the translators to say the former priests, they are interjecting their own theological viewpoint into the text as opposed to letting the text speak for itself according to what the writer intended. So the priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So there had to be many priests because they were all mortal. The priest would die and would have to be replaced by another one. So you get many priests along the line. But Yeshua holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
For it was indeed fitting that he should have such a high priest, or that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests who were mortal, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the, those of the people, since he, did, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So Yeshua offered himself up once, never needing another offering to do what he does because he lives forever to make intercession. So for the, the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So now the, the oath that God made to have the Messiah be in the order of Melchizedek came after the designation of the, of the Levitical priests. So he's, say, he's stating here that this is not, um, God's oath cannot be overridden. His oath of the, priest be, of the Messiah being a priest according to Melchizedek is sure, and it carries on forever. Okay, so then um, we aren't going to read all of chapter 8, but chapter 8 goes into explaining the superiority of the new covenant over the covenant made at Sinai. And in verse 4 of chapter 8, speaking of Yeshua, he says, If he were here on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. All right, so again, he's reaffirming what he stated back before in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The Yeshua is not a Levitical priest, cannot be a Levitical priest, but must only be that of the Melchizedek line. And that the priests who are doing their job are doing it effectively according to the Torah. They actually don't need to be replaced because they're doing what God gave them office to do. Now, starting in verse 6, here in Hebrews 8, He continues on and says, But as it is, Messiah has obtained a ministry that is, that is as much more excellent than the old, than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. He says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Okay, and then he goes on and he describes promises that were going to come with the new covenant that would be established. And then in verse 13, the scripture says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now this is often used to say that now that Yeshua is bringing in the new covenant, the old covenant has gone away, and it has become obsolete. However, that is, well, one, it's not accurate, and it's actually dispelled here in these next verses that we'll read in Hebrews 9. But what he is saying is that the promises of the new covenant are greater. The old covenant, even though it endures, it is getting ready to vanish away. 
So if we see that, it says, it is growing old and ready to vanish away. It is not one that has vanished away. And the reason why is that the Torah is for this world and this age, and it does not pass away until all is accomplished in this age. And the new covenant is for the age to come. But even though I make that statement that it's for the age to come, because Yeshua has entered as a forerunner before us, there is right now the existence of the kingdom of heaven, even in this world, that is available for us to press into and take hold of the promises and even to walk in those blessings and the power of a redeemed life that is not afraid of death because of the life that we have through Yeshua. But So in this moment, we have the covenant from Sinai that is still active, but we have the covenant that is the new covenant that has been enacted as well. Both are operating in parallel until all is accomplished from the, from the Sinai covenant, and we've moved into the age to come under the fullness of the new covenant. And he goes to give an explanation of how the one is vanishing away while yet the other, the new covenant, has now been put in place. Now, back here where we were reading in Hebrews 8, when he says, in verse 7, he says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would, not, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Now, the word covenant here is, is put in by the translator to try to help give explanation of what's going on. But in the Greek, it says, if the first had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. And it's not be, and he, he leaves the word covenant out, not because he's trying to, you know, not make it about the covenant, but because he wants to give illustrations using the first and the second in more dimensions than just with regard to the covenant. So he says, if the first had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. So this is in the Greek, it's the protos being the first and the deuteros being the second. That language gets carried on here into Hebrews 9. Because in Hebrews 9, verse 1, he says, Now even the first had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first in which there was the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second called the most holy place. So now he's gone from, I'm comparing the first covenant and the second covenant to now I'm looking at another type of first and second, the two parts of the tabernacle. The first being the holy place where the priests enter in daily to offer up incense and where you have the menorah and the showbread, the altar of incense. But then there's the second, which is the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant is. Okay, so now he's going in to say, let's talk about these two areas of the tabernacle to, under, to get a deeper understanding of the covenants and even about the age that we are in and the age to come. As we continue reading here, he says, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, 
and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail, but he was giving, uh, he's telling about what was there in the Holy of Holies. He goes on to say, These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, but, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation or even restoration. But when Messiah appeared as a high priest of the good things that, that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, the holy of holies, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Okay, so he's making a comparison and saying the place where the priests are offering daily represents this age. The Holy of Holies represents the, the world to come. It's a connecting, and that's a connecting place with God. Even on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go in there and he offered up the incense there in front of the Ark of the Covenant, the cloud from the ashes ascended up above the mercy seat, and there was a connection between the earthly and the divine in that moment. Okay? It was actually it was a supernatural thing taking place where the high priest was connecting there in the presence of God. But what has happened here is that the writer is saying, under the Levitical priesthood, we have these daily offerings that are for the flesh. But now Yeshua in the Spirit has passed through the veil into the Holy of Holies, being the one who enters into the world to come as a forerunner for us. And as he, as he goes through that veil that separated these two, he has opened the way for those who are still on this side to enter into spiritual life, not to enter into the Holy of Holies on the earth, for that would be death to any who was not the high priest entering on the Day of Atonement, but he's speaking of entering into everlasting life in the spiritual realm. And so that's, that's, where he, that's where the writer was speaking of how he's entered into the holy place that is not made with hands, not of this creation. And let's see, I think, um, yeah, so, so, so within this, Yeshua, okay, we're talking about the veil a little bit, right? So Yeshua has passed through the veil, which is the thing that separated this world and the world to come. But yet, even still, this world, the outer tabernacle, still stands until it has been completed 
and then this world passes away, the Torah passes away, and now you have a new kingdom instituted under the righteous reign of the Messiah. So Yeshua, as we said, okay, so he's not a he's not a priest on the earth, but he is a priest in the heavens. And when he will reign as king on the earth, he will remain a priest in the line of Melchizedek. Okay, so that way, as we spoke of before, he'll sit on the throne and a priest will be on his throne. But that priesthood is not a replacement for the Levitical priesthood, which still serves in this world. Now, of course, it doesn't serve at the moment because there is no temple standing. But as we've talked over the past few weeks, that the Messiah will rebuild the temple and we will see uh, the service continue until God accomplishes the restoration that he intended fully of this world, which culminates in the great coming in Revelation. But one of the things that I wanted to highlight is we spoke about Yeshua going as a forerunner before us. He's entered into everlasting life, but he also brings us into a place of everlasting life. In Hebrews 7.16 the author wrote about how Yeshua is priest not on the basis of the law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, right? That he goes on and he lives forever and he brings us into life everlasting. That life everlasting begins at the time we begin to be followers of Yeshua. It's not something that we're looking forward to that we'll get in the final resurrection. Now, we will in that resurrection, but that is available to us now. The power of an indestructible life is for us today because we can walk in full assurance of faith, of what is to come, and not fearing death, not fearing man, but being transformed by the work of the Spirit in our lives. As is said, we've identified with Him in, in His death and resurrection and now we've received of the Spirit of the, of the Messiah such that we might be freed from death, might operate in newness of life, living by the Spirit of the law, which actually gives proper interpretation to God's intent of His commandments. It doesn't supersede His commandments, it explains His commandments, and actually goes beyond the letter of the law, showing us then how to apply his commandments in every aspect of our life and all of our dealings, whether it be between individuals, business, you name it, fathers, daughters. In all of those aspects, the redemption and the renewal that God is offering to us through Yeshua is for us today to enter into so that we become like him. He wants us to be like his son now not just to be like his son when we're resurrected. So this, this forerunner aspect of Yeshua, he's already entered into a resurrected body. He cannot die again. He will bring us there, but the life he lives, or actually the life we live, we live by his spirit in us. And if his spirit is in us, then that gives us great power and confidence to go and be like him. Not just to do, not just to say, okay, well, how do I keep the commandments? How do I walk the way that Yeshua walked? But to say, no, I have the spirit of the living God in me. 
if the spirit of the living God is in me, what power do I have to change the world? As much as you have faith to take hold of. If you don't believe you have the power, you're not going to walk in the power. If you don't believe that you have overcome sin through the blood of the Lamb and have been redeemed from that, you will continue to say, this is just the way I am. But God says, no, you're to be like my son in every dimension now because I've given you everything you need for life and righteousness. So he gives us that and he calls us to be like him, to take hold of now the promises of the new covenant, the promises of the age to come, the power of the age to come. And as I was thinking on this, I always want to say, well, how does this tie into the portion? Because I know God likes to speak in multiple dimensions, right? We spoke about the vow and how God is making this vow about who Messiah would be and who he's then calling us to be in Messiah and the great life we have through him. And then in this week's portion, you have the story of, of Gad and Reuben. The children of Israel are getting ready to pass over in Numbers 32. They're getting ready to go over the Jordan and go into the land that is to be the inheritance. And they come to Moses and they say, hey, Moses, we really like this land that we've just conquered here on the east side of the Jordan. This really fits what our tribes do. And now Moses, after some negotiating and ensuring that the children of Gad and Reuben are not abandoning their brothers, that they're not acting in fear of crossing over the Jordan, then he agrees to it. Now, Gad and Reuben made vows that they would not rest until all of the land had been conquered, that they would receive their land, but then they would send warriors over to fight with the rest of the tribes in order to get the land. And Moses was buried, it's, it's disputed as to whether he would have been in, in, the, in the area given to Reuben or Gad, but it's, it's believed that he was buried there within their, with their inheritance. Now when I'm looking at this, the land that they were supposed to go into was on the west side of the Jordan, but Gad and Reuben asked for land on the east side which still falls in the original description of the land that God intended the children of Israel to receive because it goes all the way to the river Euphrates. So in a way, what was happening is Gad and Reuben were asking for part of the future inheritance. They were saying, we understand you're saying that the inheritance that we can have right now is west of the Jordan, but I know you have more for us. And this land over here on the east side, you've given to us. It's been promised in the original description of the land. We want to walk in it now. And so they received what they contended for. And then once even having received it, they didn't say, okay, now we're done. They held their vow and they went forward walking with their brothers to go and complete the entire fulfillment of the giving of the land. And they, they upheld their vow. 
I see a parallel here between the promise of this world and the promise of the world to come and saying, do we recognize the glory of the promise of the world to come that is available to us now and will we contend for it? Because what we contend for, we will be able to walk into. When we ask God for the good things that he desires, he gives to us. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. Do you see miracles? Do you see God moving in healing? Well, are you praying with faith? Are you anticipating? Are you making yourself a sanctuary for his presence to dwell in, to speak to you, to show you what you're to do today, how you're to be his hands and his feet so that you can go and see him move in mighty ways? That's what he's calling us to do, just as Yeshua did. Because every day Yeshua would get up and he would go to a quiet place and he would hear, Lord, what do you have for me today? We're to be like him, guided by the Spirit, moving in the power of the Spirit today. It's for us today. And so we press into it. Amen. We press into the promises and know that we will receive goodness from our Father. Amen. Now, as we're, as we're wrapping this up, um, we're completing the book of Numbers. And as we complete the book of Numbers, uh, we read the last few verses of the book, and we'll say together, Chazak, Chazak. Um, but, so let, let's turn to Numbers 36, 9 through 13. So no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. The daughters of Zelophehad did as the Lord commanded Moses, for Mala, Tirzah, Hogla, Milcah, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, were married to the sons of their father's brothers. They were married into the clans of the people of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's clan. These are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. And now may we all say this together. Chazak, chazak, venit chazek. Be strong, be strong, and may we be strengthened. Amen. Amen. And now... One final verse before we pray. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Master Yeshua, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with, every good, with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Yeshua Messiah, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we love you and we bless you. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness towards us. We thank you, Lord, for our righteous Messiah who has entered within the veil, who has brought us into everlasting life. Thank you, Lord, for the gifts of the age to come that you have given to us today to walk in. May we have the confidence and faith in you to take hold of it, to walk in your promises, and to be those who make change in this world through the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, we bless you, and ask this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Mm -hmm.
Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas. Thank you.